1 Corinthians 16. We have been making our way through Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthian church. We started in February of this year, and today will be our last week in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I've really enjoyed this series. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it's going to be over after today, frankly, but uh, here we are at the end of the book. Would you join me now in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Sophonis were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men." The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this gift, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Thank you for your instruction, Lord, that meets us in our everyday life and for guiding us to be faithful to you, not just when things are going well, not just when things are, are really difficult and we are being tested, but even in those long stretches of everyday life when things are mundane and everyday. Father, I pray that you would uh, open up the truth of this particular passage to us this morning. We pray uh, as well for our brother Mike Hott, who is uh, dealing with uh, pneumonia right now in the hospital. Father, I pray that you would strengthen his body, that you would heal him rapidly, and that you would uh, bring him back home safe and that you would be with their entire family as they care for him during this time. And uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would be honored in in the next few moments. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most unsettling experiences that a Christian can have is to watch a formerly faithful mentor, friend, drift away from following Christ. I wish I didn't know what this felt like, but I do. Many of you do as well. When I was a teenager, I looked up to Frank. That's not his real name. 
an experienced and zealous evangelist who held a leadership position in our church's bus ministry. If you don't know what a bus ministry is, it's just like it sounds. People get on a bus, drive into a neighborhood, pick up a bunch of people, and bring them to church. But Frank was a leader in the bus ministry, and uh, he was inspiring. He invested countless hours in the task of reaching souls for Christ, but he had a quirk. I barely noticed it at first, but it became harder and harder to ignore. To put it bluntly, he was proud. He had a lot of knowledge and experience and zeal, much more than the average Christian, and he knew it. He enjoyed the influence that he had in the church, the budget that he oversaw, the visible success of his efforts. One day, our church called a new pastor. Almost immediately, the two men clashed. The pastor amazingly, thought that he was the primary leader in the church. But Frank disagreed. He became petty and vindictive, started gossiping about other leaders, eventually left the church, and actually brought legal action against the congregation for a series of ridiculous reasons. He seems to have started well, but his pride got the better of him. I wish I could say that Frank was the only one, another man I'll call Bob, was essentially the youth pastor for our group of over 100 teenagers, but he did it all on a volunteer basis. He was amazing. Uh, He had a beautiful wife and wonderful kids, a magnetic one-in-a-million personality, but Bob was sort of a loose cannon. He lacked personal discipline. He loved money, and he made a lot of it, and he spent it like it was going out of style. He was too free in his conversations with the ladies, He was a big eater, and as I found out later, a little too fond of whiskey. Fast forward a few years after I graduated from high school, and the man I had looked up to had proven himself to be a serial adulterer, completely unable to say no to sin and the temptations of the devil. I'm not sure where he is today, but he's certainly not the man that I looked up to as a youngster. Another man we'll call Mitch was a gifted teacher who could unlock the meaning of biblical text with ease and did so on a weekly basis for his packed Sunday school class. Everybody loved Mitch, but for some reason he didn't love them back. He was a loner. He never let anybody in. He had no time for God's people. One day he came to teach class and then left before the gathering of God's people in a worship service. He did it again a few months later, then twice the following month, And then he started to do it every week. When the pastors finally confronted Mitch, he wouldn't listen to reason, and before long he left the church altogether and even stopped answering calls from the people who used to hang on to his every word. It's painful, isn't it? To watch somebody you respect slowly implode in their Christian walk. The longer I live, the more I realize how necessary it is for us to be purposeful rather than passive in our Christian walk. The years drag on, little foibles become habits, and those habits turn into ruts, and we drive along those ruts, and they lead us ever so slowly, ever so subtly, off of the path of following Christ. And we, if we're going to do this, if we're going to follow Jesus as the years wear on, we've got to recognize that it's not a sprint It's a marathon, and and we've got to find a rhythm, a pace, a, a patience 
to pay attention to the little things we'll need to keep following Jesus in the long intervals between the crises, between these decision points along the way, these long stretches of time where we grow complacent. This is essentially what Paul intends to equip the Corinthians to do in these final verses of his letter. He's not present with them. He's not going to be present with them anytime soon. They need to stay faithful in the meantime. So he offers up this series of seemingly random instructions that we can distill, I think, into three essentials that they're going to need to follow Christ in the everyday as they await the apostles' arrival and, they, and as they wait for the day when Jesus comes and ushers in the resurrection. So here they are, three essentials that you'll need to follow Christ in the long stretches of everyday, everyday life. You will need humility, grit, and community. Humility, grit, and community. Let's look at our text and consider each of these one by one. What do I need to follow Christ in everyday life so I can stay in the race? First of all, we need humility. We need humility. In verses 10 and 11, Paul tells them about Timothy's travel plans. And then in verse 12, he mentions Apollos. He's already said that he himself doesn't plan to come to see them for a while. And there are other individuals mentioned in the chapter that we'll talk about in a minute. And all of this might seem like a random collection of updates that the the Corinthians just needed to know about, and there's really not much significance to it. But I think there's actually a pattern in in Paul's uh, updates about these individual people that we can glean from today. Remember all the way back in chapter 1 how Paul had heard a report from Chloe's people. Do you remember what that report was? They, They were saying things like, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. I'm of Peter. There was a party spirit at the church in Corinth. This, uh, this clickishness that was dividing up the church and it was making people proud. And Paul tells them, I'm not coming anytime soon. But you know who is coming? My assistant, Timothy. And Timothy, by the way, at this time, he must have been in his late 20s, just a young man. Uh, Timothy from Lystra, untrained in the fancy rhetoric the Corinthians found impressive. And Paul says, let no one despise him. Don't let anybody look down on Timothy. Just because he's young, just because he's not me, just because he's not Apollos, he's coming. Make sure you take care of Timothy. Humble yourselves. Well, wait a second. At least Apollos is coming, right, Paul? He's a fine speaker. Our important friends will be willing to come and hear him preach. And Paul says, no, Apollos isn't coming either. Okay, well, who's going to lead us then? If you're not coming, and if Apollos isn't coming, who should we look up to? Who should we follow? Who should be our leader? Well, Paul says, you know, Stephanus, the guy who grew up down the street, that's what he means when he says he's one of the first converts in Achaia. Achaia is the region, remember, where Corinth is the center Uh, So Stephanus is one of the first converts in the region in which Corinth is situated. So he's a man that they had known. Uh, This is the guy who was not necessarily known for his talent and, 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 and his ability. He was known because of his servant's heart. Can you imagine the guy that you went to school with? The guy who cut up in English class and made the teacher cry? 
the guy who cussed like a sailor in the locker room, the guy who dropped out of college, the guy who got fired from his first real job, the guy that you used to get drunk with, the guy who disappointed you. You know where all his bodies are buried. You know all about the skeletons. You're glad he came to Christ. And it's true that he's different now. And you're thankful for that. But then Paul says, be subject to such as these. This guy that you know so well. Now I know you. I know this church. I know that if the Apostle Paul wrote us a letter and used the words, be subject to. And then the next word was the name of a human being that you know. You would bristle a little bit, right? I mean, this is the United States of America. We aren't going to be subject to anybody. This is Texas, right? We're going to do our own thing. Be subject to a Christian servant. Wait, what if he's younger than you? What if he's less successful than you? What if he has a past? What if he's not as gifted as the next guy? That twinge of resistance tightening your heart, that recoil away from the idea that you should submit to another human being, you know what that's called? You know what it is. It's pride. Pride. Pride is going to destroy your Christian walk. Pride is a killer. It started with Satan and it's based on his lies. The lie that you are telling yourself and rehearsing day after day. I'm better than all these other people. You know, this church is lucky to have someone like me. The lie that the world owes me something. The lie that that God is lucky to have me. That I've been wronged and mistreated not only by God's people but by God himself. That destructive affection will weasel its way into your heart and slowly rot your soul. Wasn't it pride that was the vehicle of Saul's destruction back in 1 Samuel? Remember we went through 1 Samuel several years ago and wasn't it the lack of humility and the wellspring of envy and of arrogance and of disobedience and of ignorance and of loneliness and of despair and finally death? Wasn't it pride that started all of that? But if we consider... The message that Paul has been bringing forward in this letter as a whole, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that takes care of pride, doesn't it? It gets rid of pride. Uh, The message of the gospel, first and foremost, remember, this is something that we often overlook. We tell people, Jesus died for you, and if you believe, you can go to heaven when you die. And we rush past the first part of that, which is this. God made you, and everything that you are Everything that you have is a gift from him. You didn't bring it about yourself. God is the one that gave it to you. And by the way, you have sinned in such a spectacular fashion that you can't even extricate yourself from that situation. You can't save yourself. God alone can save you. And he sent his son and he's, he's, Jesus has gone to the cross and he's hung there and he's borne the wrath of God for you. You have nothing to be proud about. You ought to be humble and grateful. The gospel reminds us that our sin is so utterly wicked that only God could save us. If you internalize these gospel truths, you know what happens to our pride when we internalize these things, when we really own them? It just withers away like these leaves falling off the trees right now. and it, it just, It's just done. And Jesus went to the greatest possible 
lengths for us. So humble yourself, forget yourself in the presence of Almighty God. God has always desired for us to lay aside our pride and be broken before him. He says to Isaiah the prophet, and this is just one example of dozens and dozens, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who was of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Will you be broken today? Will you humble yourself today before Almighty God? I'm not saying you're worthless. I'm not saying you're not worth anything. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that what you are, who you are, what makes you worthwhile is a gift, not from you, but from God. That ought to humble us. We need to stop nursing pride like a pet lion, real cute for a few weeks, but before long, ready to eat our lunch and then have us for dinner. Of course, Paul gives the Corinthians a very practical way to exercise humility. Okay, and all of us understand, I think, pride is bad, humility is good. But then when it gets into the realities of practical everyday life, that's when we begin to push back. And Paul gives them something specific to do. He says, be subject to these servant leaders. And the truth is, Indian Creek, this is the kind of humility that God has called us to as well. Do you know that? God has placed elders in his church, qualified men whose job it is to communicate the word and shepherd the flock and lead by serving. Can the words be subject to such as these? Describe your relationship with the elders of Indian Creek Baptist Church? Or or does that language make you sort of cringe? I don't know if I want to go there with these guys. Be subject. They're just guys. They're no different from me. In a sense, you're absolutely right. In another sense, you're not right. Because these are the elders of God's church. These are people that the congregation has appointed to lead in God's church, to fill a scriptural office, an office that God made up, not us. What about Paul's language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Respect those who are over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord. You say, over me? Nobody's over me. I don't like that language, but it comes from the Bible. Or how about Hebrews 13? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Folks, the men listed in the bulletin as elders are your spiritual authority. And by the way, I don't want to bring that up. I don't like bringing that up because it's a terrifying concept to me. I, don't, I would prefer not to talk about it, but it's my job to talk about what's in the Bible. And it's true that that spiritual authority has limits, but that doesn't mean it's not real authority. They have the authority to call you to faith, to call you to obey the word of God, to shepherd your soul, to set an agenda for the spiritual health of the church. And, and, and I just have to say, the reason why so many Christians in America start strong and then stumble and fall when they're following Christ, one of the main reasons why that happens is because in many cases they lack the humility to actually be subject to servant leaders and make that practical application in their life. And some of you, quite frankly, are in that extremely vulnerable state. You don't even realize it because you ignore the leadership of the elders of the church or because you're always nitpicking the things that they do. You say, well, Jake, did somebody do something this week? No, I'm just trying to make the point that this is a a scriptural concept and Paul gives them 
this instruction so that they would be faithful in following Christ in the meantime. In a society where if you don't like the way things are, you can just leave, a lot of believers fail to cultivate the humility required to persevere. But friends, we need humility as the years stretch on, as we're called to follow Christ in the meantime, as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Now that's hard, but we need it. And the Holy Spirit gives us that humility. Number one essential is humility. Let's move on to number two. Essential number two, you need grit. You need grit. Right in the middle of this final section, Paul offers up a series of four imperatives. Look at verse 13. Notice he says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now it seems to me that these four commands, they all kind of go together. It's sort of like those of you, excuse me, who have one of these expensive cell phones, and if you turn it over, it has four, you know, three or four lenses for your camera. What are they doing? They're looking at the same subject, but maybe they have a different field of focus or a different uh, exposure time or something like that. They're different, or, or maybe they're different facets of the same gem. That's what these commands are. It, Paul's saying one thing, and he's kind of saying it in four different ways, and, and so that's why I kind of sum it up with this one word. We've got to have grit, you're going to need grit. If you're going to follow Christ in a world that rejects him, if you're going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but situated on a street in the city of man, then it's going to be tough, and you are going to have to be tough as well. If you're a Christian, you are in a battle. Make no mistake about it. I don't mean you're in a battle with other human beings. I don't mean that we go outside of this building and go fight everybody in the world. We're not in a battle with humans. We're not in a battle against flesh and blood. But we are in a battle against the principalities and powers. And Satan is after you. There is a cosmic spiritual struggle taking place between the forces of the enemy and the followers of Jesus. And your mind and your affections and your lifestyle, your home, your life is the theater in which that battle plays out. And and there are going to be moments, many of them, when the fighting is going to be extremely intense. Don't expect it to be easy. It's going to be tough. Christ has redeemed you. He's called you as a member of the royal priesthood. That phrase, that's repeated more than once in the Bible. You are royal priests in his kingdom. You are a child of the king. You know what the child of a king the reality they face, danger, difficulty. Because the, the schemes of Satan are constantly directed towards you. You bear the image of the Son of God. You bear the seal of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, you are of massive strategic importance to the enemy, whether you know it or not. So you've got to watch out. You've got to be vigilant. You've got to take care. You've got to be aware of the temptations and the accusations of Satan that are coming from every direction. You cannot afford, friends, to be naive. We Christians are so naive so often. We, we try to be nice. We don't want to be judgmental. And so then we go even further and we don't exercise discernment about the schemes of the enemy. You can exercise your Christian liberty without exposing yourself to the temptations of the flesh. You've got to be vigilant. Here, parents, you've got to have some grit. 
If you're a Christian parent and you're raising kids today, you've got to have some vigilance. You've got to be aware of what Satan is doing in the lives of your kids. He's going to throw everything at them that he possibly can. He's going to come at them through the shows that they watch, through the friends that they hang out with, through the music they listen to, through the clothes that they buy, all of it. And they need help. They need you, mom and dad, to have some courage. You need to not be afraid of them misunderstanding and maligning you. You need to be okay with it if they say things like, I wish I was in so-and-so's family instead of ours. Every kid says that at some point in their life, okay, right? Don't worry about it. You love them. You do what God's calling you to do and, and be tough. They're gonna push back sometimes. You be tough, and follow Christ. Have some grit. Stand firm in the faith. Be willing to take an unpopular position. The world is opposed to Christ. So if you are living like Christ, you are going to get crossways with the world. That's just going to happen. Just get over it. Recognize that Satan is running a scorched earth winner-take-all campaign. Sometimes we act as though if we give Satan a little bit of ground, he'll go away. If we give Satan ground, he's just going to make it worse. We've got to give him no ground. We've got to push back with everything we've got. This grit is what's behind the command to act like men. Have you thought about this? Act like men. What does that mean? In our effeminate age, these three words have been skewered by those who think they know better than the Holy Spirit. Remember that this is the Word of God. There shouldn't be anything controversial about what the Apostle is saying. What does it mean to act like men? A man has greater physical strength and is more, frankly, expendable than the wife that he leaves home with the kids. So it's the man that marches into battle. That's just basic, okay? I, I, I don't know how else to say it. In antiquity, nobody would have questioned that. That would not have been a debate. Uh, because God's design real, reveals God's purpose. So act like men. Here's what it means. It means you be brave Be courageous, put yourself in harm's way so that other people can be spiritually safe. That's one of the things that act like men means. Here's another thing it means. A man is not a boy. A boy relies on the protection and the provision of somebody else. He makes decisions without feeling the full weight of his consequences. Have you thought about that? This is what boys do. They make decisions. They don't think about what's going to happen as a result. They don't own the consequences of those decisions. A man is different. A man is someone who takes responsibility for his decisions. He feels the consequences of those decisions because he's reached that level of maturity. So here's what Paul's saying when he says act like men. He's saying take responsibility for yourself, for your family, for those that God has given you to care for. Lean into that. Recognize that you own the consequences of it and you take the initiative and have the courage to put yourself in harm's way so that others might thrive, have some grit. How many Christians languish for years without discipline, without any spiritual success, taking a step forward and two back, and on and on with no end in sight? How many Christians make excuses for themselves or deflect the constructive confrontations of their brothers and sisters in Christ? And go on and on like that for years and years. Well, you know, if my work situation for diff- were, were different, uh, then I would follow Jesus. I would obey. 
You know, if I just, I, I just have a laid-back personality. If I had a different personality, maybe, but I just have a laid-back personality, I'm, I'm just not going to push. You know, if my wife would just, if my husband would just get his act together, does this sound familiar to you, any of this stuff? Listen, are, do you have the Holy Spirit of God or not? Do you, are, are you not loved and welcomed by the most remarkable person in existence? Hasn't he given you the gift of his word to tell you what he expects from you today? Hasn't he given you the down payment of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you can obey him today? I mean, do you believe that that's true or not? Which is it? Aren't you a son or a daughter of the king equipped with the armor of God to do battle against the wiles of the enemy? So the answer to all those questions is, you are all those things if you're in Christ. So my question is, where's the resolve? Where's the, where's the discipline? Where's the strength to say no when the enemy attacks? Where's the sweat and the toil? You say, that sounds really legalistic and harsh. Just get out of here with that. Because here's what, here's what we do as Christians in the United States. We take our shield and we point the shield toward the commands of God in Scripture. Ooh, I'm going to block myself from the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take that shield and point it towards the enemy. That's where the shield should be pointed. You should be welcoming the instruction from the Word of God. I love reading books about discipline and leadership. They help me a lot, but I read something the other day that just convicted me. It stuck with me, although I don't remember where I saw it. Uh, It was basically this. You already know one or two things that God wants you to change. You already know one or two things that God wants you to repent from today. Stop making plans to change. Stop reading books and listening to podcasts that explain creative ways to change and just do those one or two things that God is already convicting you about. He's giving you the power to do it. He's given you the Holy Spirit. You know, that helped me because you know what's wonderful about following Christ? One of the things that's wonderful about following Christ is he is wiser than I am. And, and so I don't have to start from scratch and figure out all the things that that it means to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus knows how to do it, and he knows how to guide me along the way. He doesn't give me everything all at once. He gives me one or two things. Am I right? Isn't this true? He gives me one or two things, and I do those one or two things, and then he helps me to grow, and then maybe he gives me one or two more things, but all you have to do, you already know what the Holy Spirit's convicting you about. Just do what God is telling you to do. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. I like how God said it to Joshua in a verse I had to learn in Sunday school as a little kid. I'll never forget. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Don't we need to hear that every morning? Have some grit. Essential number one, humility. Essential number two, grit. But consider essential number three, community. Community, what does that mean? It means that if you're going to follow Christ, in the meantime, when 
life goes on and normal, mundane, daily routines repeat themselves over and over, you will need to be a part of a community of faith. That's necessary. That's an essential of faithfulness and following the Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the, th- the reasons that we perhaps overlook this is because community for the early church, the church described in the New Testament, was almost like the air that they breathed. They just assumed that they were going to be a part of a community. Notice how in verses 19 and following, Paul mentions these groups of people who send their greetings and their well wishes. Aquila and Priscilla, they greet you. All the brothers greet you. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Have you ever thought about that command, greet one another with a holy kiss? Let's do that right now. I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's actually not the only time that Paul says greet one another with a holy kiss or with a, a kiss of charity. Uh, we think that that is weird, to, to be frank. Uh, we don't do that in our culture. But for most of the world, throughout most of history, this command would not seem strange to them. This is something that Christians have done. Uh, when we used to live in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, we, when we first moved there, we lived in an apartment complex in which most of our neighbors were from all over the world. There were people from all over the world. There were people from Lebanon, uh, from India, from Serbia, from Egypt. Our Egyptian friends one day had us over for a meal. Godly Christian family, they, they had their extended family there with us. They had moved to the United States to become a part of the medical community. And so they invited us over into their townhome, and we uh, walked in the door, and every single person in that family gave us the holy kiss, okay? And you know what? It was fine. Uh, But what were they saying? I know I'm not going to start kissing people. I know our limits. But here's, what were were they saying? What, What do we say when you walk up to somebody and kiss them? If you can imagine, what you're saying is, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're a part of my life. I'm glad that you're a part of the family. In ancient times, you didn't offer this kind of greeting to just anybody. It was meaningful. And behind it is an entire world view. So take it once again back to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When sin entered the world, remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Sin enters the world and immediately the relationships between all the things that God created begin to break apart, right? The relationship between Adam and Eve breaks apart. Their kids have a bad relationship. They, uh, one kills the other. And that goes on and on throughout the rest of creation. And then the Lord Jesus comes and he begins to gather people, not just from the children of Israel, but from every tribe and, and language and nation. And he, he prays just before he dies in John 17 that we would be one. So Jesus' desire is that his people would be one. And we see that fulfilled in the book of Revelation, that one day we will gather around the throne, that there's not going to be any of this enmity anymore, this misunderstanding. We are going to be one. So the church is supposed to reflect that future reality. This is what the gospel teaches us. One day all believers will gather. And in the meantime, if we're going to follow Christ faithfully in the everyday, we need to reflect this value that Jesus so deeply desired. You know, one of the reasons why some of you in this room are unstable in your walk with the Lord, just to be as frank as I possibly can be, 
is because this church isn't really your community. I'm just being honest. You come maybe to the events, maybe you come and, and at a certain time and, and you participate in the things when, when we have something, but it's not really your people. You know what I'm saying? And that's not good. Uh, I don't think you really appreciate just how vulnerable that that's making you to the attacks of the enemy. You need people, godly, wise, believers in Jesus, who spend time with you and know you. You need it. And by the way, God is sending you to them as well. God's bringing you into this group because he's giving you spiritual gifts to build up the body yourself. You're part of the solution. Wouldn't it be great if we really reflected that even more this year than we ever have before. I mean, don't we have room to grow in this area, to really integrate together as a community? I I would love nothing more than to truly reach the city of Mineral Wells with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I know all of the pastors in town have the same desire, and I know you have the same desire as well. But folks, wouldn't it be great if when the people of our town go to a restaurant or a school or a store in our city that they're always bumping up against people who treat each other with kindness and grace and, and, and really love each other and really reflect the values and the love of the Holy Spirit of God. Wouldn't that have an impact on our neighbors? Wouldn't that take the words that we say and give them a little bit of oomph? I mean, if you think that that's going to happen, well, we're all doing our own thing, then we're kidding ourselves. We've got to get together. We're we're not going to reach the city of Mineral Wells without leaning into the family of God, the community of the faithful. I, I, I know you want Indian Creek Baptist Church to be a hospital for broken people, a haven for sinners, a place for justice for the weak, a place where marriages are strengthened, a place where addictions are cast aside, a place where sinners are forgiven and baptized and empowered to live like Christ? I mean, do you see the limitless potential of what God is doing here at Indian Creek Baptist Church and and at churches like ours all around the country, the opportunities that we have to be a light on a hill to see the work of the Spirit move forward, and if that's going to happen, and you're going to be a part of it, then you are going to have to do what it takes, not just in the big moments, Not just when things are great or when things are really, really difficult, but in between, when things are mundane and every day, you're going to have to lean in to the family of God in Christ. You're going to have to make it a priority. You're going to have to say, that's my people. I'm going to clear my schedule. I'm going to get there. I'm going to make these people a part of my everyday life. Open up your home. Encourage a brother or sister. Stay after church. Uh, for a few minutes just to meet somebody new. And, and these little things that we do, friends, they will make a difference. If we're going to follow Christ in the everyday, we need community. One day very soon, either Jesus is going to return or you and I are going to come to the end of our race. Along the way, there are going to be high points. There are going to be moments of electric spiritual enthusiasm overwhelming joy in reflection on the grace of Christ. There are going, excuse me, there are going to be high points and there are going to be low points. Moments when you're called upon to walk through the valley, when your prayers will seem empty and your griefs endless. But we have to understand 
that there are going to be long gaps in between these mountains and these valleys. There are going to be long seasons where we have to stay faithful and we're going to be tempted to pride and complacency and self-reliance. Maybe you're in the middle of something like that right now. But in those seasons, remember the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it lead you to humility. Let it strengthen you with the grit that the Holy Spirit provides. Let it draw you into community. And you will be strong. And you'll be useful in the kingdom. And you'll have the endurance that you need to keep running. Would you pray with me now? Father, so often when we gather, we spend our time considering lofty, wonderful truths and facing some harsh realities, but but oftentimes those uh, really important truths, they, they seem to be different from what we face every day because everyday life is tedious. There are a lot of boring moments in everyday life. A lot of chances for us to grow complacent. And so, Father, I pray that as we walk through these seasons, just like the Corinthians did years and years ago, that you would give us humility, that you would give us grit, resolve, that you would draw us into community. And that you would grant us each one of these gifts so that we might persevere in faithfulness and fulfill the potential that you've given us and fulfill the demands that you've placed on our life because you made us and you are in charge of us as our king. Father, I pray that you would do that for each and every person in here and that we would see the fruit of following Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.